Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. And you can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. We'll also visit with renowned Charles Murray. He's written a new book. It's called Facing Reality. And he's written several other books before, but this is so interesting. Two truths that we really need to know about uh, in today's culture. And then Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, will be with us as well. It is June the 25th, and on this day in 1876, Native American forces led by Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull defeated the U.S. Army troops of George General George Armstrong Custer in the Battle of Little Bighorn near southern Montana's Little Bighorn River. Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, Lakota Sioux leaders, strongly resisted the mid-19th century efforts of the U.S. government to confine their people to reservations. In 1875, after gold was discovered in South Dakota's Black Hills, the U.S. Army ignored previous treaty agreements and invaded the region. This betrayal led many Sioux and Cheyenne tribesmen to leave their reservations to join Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse in Montana. By the late spring of 1876, more than 10,000 Native Americans had gathered in a camp along the Little Bighorn River, which called the Gracia Grass in defiance of U.S. War Department order to return to their reservations or risk being attacked. In mid-June, three columns of U.S. soldiers lined up against the camp and prepared to march. A force of 1,200 Native Americans turned back the first column on June the 17th. Five days later, General Alfred Terry ordered Custer's 7th Cavalry to scout ahead for enemy troops. On the morning of June the 25th, Custer drew near the camp and decided to press on ahead rather than wait for reinforcements. At uh, midday, Custer's 600 men entered the Little Big Horde Valley. Among the Native Americans, word quickly spread of the impending attack. The older Sitting Bull rallied the warriors and saw the safety of the women and children. And while Crazy Horse set off with a large force to meet the attackers head on, despite Custer's desperate attempts to regroup his men, they were quickly overwhelmed. Custer and some 200 men in his battalion were attacked by as many as 3,000 Native Americans. Within an hour, Custer and every last one of his soldiers were dead. The Battle of Little Bighorn, also called Custer's Last Stand, marked the most decisive Native American victory and the worst U.S. Army defeat in the Long Plains Indian War. The gruesome fate of Custer and his men outraged many white Americans and confirmed their image of the Native Americans as wild. Meanwhile, the U.S. government increased its effort to subdue the tribes, and within five years, most of all the Lakota Sioux and Cheyenne would be confined to reservations. <clears throat> Not a, a pleasant page in our, in our history, actually, for uh, violating the treaty that we uh, that we'd uh, signed with them, uh, and of course mainly because of gold and gold found in the Black Hills. But that's the uh, Custer's last stand on this day. Well, uh, you've heard the story, I'm sure, but it's got got me quite concerned. A 12-story condominium in Surfside, about 15 miles north of Miami partially collapsed Wednesday night, prompting a massive search and rescue effort. At least one person died and 35 were rescued as of Thursday morning. Now, here's what I think we know about the building. Firefighters were extricating dozens of people from the battered high-rise condominium building after the part of the uh, structure collapsed in a mammoth pile of twisted steel and concrete. I mean, it just pancaked. This just uh, should not happen. These uh, buildings are built... I think this building was built in 1981, so it's only 40 years ago, and it should be able to stand hurricanes. Never just sitting there, it just collapsed. Residents seeking to flee the building screamed for help, and some were plucked from the building by firefighters using ladders. Surfside Mayor Charles Burkett confirmed that at least one person had died and warned that the death toll would likely rise. Uh, 
Ten people were treated at the scene, and two were brought to the hospital, one of whom died, Burkett said, adding that 15 families walked out of the building on their own. That's good news. The Chaplin Tower South condominiums were built in 1981. The construction style is concrete block. Uh, Chaplin Tower uh, South contained 135 units. In earlier reports, Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine Cava reported about half of the 130 units in the building were affected by the collapse. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue confirmed 55 units were affected. The condominium building is in Surfside, which is about 15 miles north of Miami. And nearby neighborhoods say Bay Harbor, Island, Beach Bay, and uh, Sunny Isles Beach. Uh, It's a nice part of town. Actually, some of these condominiums went for as much as $2 million. So this this just should not happen. By the way, Governor DeSantis was on the scene and ready to provide support, declared a state of emergency. It was constructed in 1981. Uh, Shimon... Wodnowski, a professor at the Department of Earth and Environment, uh, said that it has been sinking at alarming rate, the building now, since the 1990s. He saw the news that Chaplin Tower South Condominium in Surfside collapsed, and he instantly remembered it from a study, he said. Uh, he said, oh, my God, we detected that a long time ago. So it was sinking at the rate, of, I think it's two millimeters per year. So not a lot, but... Uh, there's speculation of a lot of things that could have affected uh, just, first of all, uh, you, you need to have a engineer study every couple of years just to make sure that everything is satisfactory and, and in a working order and there's no danger in the building. Not sure that was done or if they did it, the engineers were certainly liable for not finding uh, the problems. Sad. Uh, this just shouldn't happen. It could happen in a banana republic, but certainly shouldn't happen in the United States of America. We're talking about buildings that should be able to stand Category 4 hurricanes or 5 hurricanes. Well, mRNA vaccine inventor Dr. Robert Malone joined Tucker Carlson on Wednesday night after the pro-CCP YouTube deleted his video on the dangers and risks of the vaccine that the U.S. government is currently promoting to children. The World Health Organization now says that children should not take the vaccine. The interview took place on the same day that the CDC admitted that doctors were seeing more cases of rare heart inflammation with young adults after they received the COVID vaccine. Right off the bat, Dr. Malone told Tucker Carlson that he is concerned about the risks of these treatments. Tucker said, you know, the YouTube, it took it down. They did this even though Dr. Malone may be the most qualified person on planet Earth to discuss the subject. Why, said Tucker, because he helped create the mRNA technology behind the COVID vaccine. We think he has a right to speak in a way that's accessible to non-scientists. Do you have concerns about these vaccines for people who aren't at great risk, asked Tucker. Dr. Malone replied, yes, I think my concerns are... The government is not being transparent with us about what these risks are, and so I'm of the opinion that people have the right to decide whether they want to accept the vaccine or not, especially since they are experimental vaccines. This is a fundamental right to having to do with clinical research ethics, so my concern is I know that there are risks, but we don't have access to the data, and the data having been captured rigorously enough so that we can actually access, access those risks. And therefore, for folks like your audience, you and me, we don't really have the information we need to make a reasonable decision about the vaccine. When asked about whether college-aged young adults should take the vaccine, he replied, So I have a bias that the benefits probably don't outweigh the risks in this cohort, but unfortunately the risk-benefit analysis is not being done. Certainly I can say that the risk-benefit of those 18 and below certainly doesn't justify the vaccine. And there's a pretty good chance that it doesn't justify vaccinations in these very young adults. So while we have this administration pushing to try and get the 70% of people vaccinated, there's certainly risks here, and we should be paying attention to that. Perhaps we should uh, get off the bandwagon and try to push these vaccines and help people make informed decisions about their own bodies. Well, hours after President Joe Biden declared we have a deal to renew the infrastructure of the United States, well, the Senate tops Republican lashed out at plans to follow the $1.2 trillion bipartisan bill with another measure funding what Democrats call human infrastructure. 
and Biden and top congressional Democrats, House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer all long signaled their plan to link the bipartisan deal with another bill, including spending on home health care and child care. The second measure would be passed through a Senate maneuver called reconciliation, which would allow it to take effect without Republican votes. Biden told reporters at the White House that he expected uh, quick action on both measures or neither would survive. So in other words, he gets this bipartisan deal that he's worked out. He says, we have a deal, but he's not even willing to sign it unless this other piece of legislation passed through reconciliation is passed as well. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. And of course, uh, reconciliation would be passed without the 60 votes required in the Senate. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Coming up, William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Charles Murray. His new book is called Facing Reality. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. So, William, I'm guessing for the last six, eight weeks we've been talking about the infrastructure saga, the, st- the story of trying to pull together this bill uh, by the Biden administration. So uh, a lot happened in the last 24 hours. Maybe you could bring us up to date. Indeed. Um, so uh, I'll note crucial context, as I've noted at the outset of our prior discussions, there's already $700 billion worth of infrastructure spending, traditional infrastructure spending, in the works. And in part, that is due to the, the prior uh, pandemic spending measures. 
and in part that's due to the periodic highway reauthorization in Congress, which is going on right now. Um, so in addition to that spending, there's been these negotiations um, between the White House and most recently the so-called G21, the group of 21 bipartisan senators. Um, and yesterday, they announced there was a big announcement at the White House that they had reached a framework um, largely along the lines of what have been we, we've discussed in prior calls. That is about $560 billion in new infrastructure spending. So it was uh, big news. Yeah. Um, but then it was really a tale of two press conferences yesterday because two hours later, Biden held another news conference in which he said he would not sign the bipartisan bill he had just heralded, um, or the framework, I should say, unless it, uh, unless Congress also passed and, and it came to his desk um, another four to six trillion dollars worth of spending on human infrastructure and climate change. Um, so there was a. a a muddled message, if you will, that, that turned off many Senate Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, Senator Lindsey Graham, for example, and I don't, it's extreme, but uh, I agree with the sentiment, uh, said the president's second press conference was, uh, was extortion. I mean, it didn't really relate at all to the prior negotiation. Right. And, and Senator McConnell, Senate uh, Minority Leader McConnell called it, uh, said that it was pulling the rug out from the G21. So, it was. Uh, it's unclear where we go from here, but it is um, uh, uh, perhaps disconcerting that the president would send such a dichotomous message yesterday. So I have uh, now this uh, reconciliation bill that he wants. Of course, what that means is that he doesn't need 60 senators to go along with it. He just needs the 50 to pass the bill, uh, which would be extraordinarily bad for our economy, quite frankly, in my opinion. But... Uh, can he, you know, just putting your ear to the ground and what's happening uh, in uh, the, the Democrat Party, both in the House and the Senate, can he actually pull this off? I have serious doubts. That's the $64,000 question. Um, so you, you correctly noted that, that, that this uh, the second package with 4 to $6 trillion more in spending, and that's on top of the $5.5 trillion that Congress has already spent over the last year and a half to respond to the pandemic, um, but it would it would uh, proceed via this reconciliation process that would allow the Democratic majorities and uh, in Congress to avoid the filibuster. Um, it, it's very much an open question. I mean, Senator Manchin, before the, the President Biden had that second press conference, um, Senator Manchin had thrown cold water on the idea of, of sort of this this uh, everything under the sun infrastructure approach with a with a second. Um, second mm. bill, a, reconcilia a reconciliation process. So you raise uh, what is perhaps the, the operative question right now on Capitol Hill, and that is, can the president, Schumer and Pelosi, get uh, Senators Manchin and Sinema to go along? So it, it's very unclear as to whether or not the Democratic caucus um, is fully on board with this plan, which it would have to be were it to proceed. So yeah. There is a, a previously I'd said that uh, on pre previous calls that the most likely outcome was that everything would fall apart and the Dems would proceed alone on some capacity. Now um, I'll throw out there that there's a pretty decent chance that this thing just falls apart altogether. Yeah. Um, that, that we've got a, an impasse that uh, I guess a so-called Mexican standoff where the, everyone's going to walk away. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. So, William, uh, the, another part of this is the, uh, I think a lot of people are very concerned about the ta tax increases. Not so concerned about climate change, ironically, or about <laughs> <laughs> some of these other things. But uh, they, they, he can't include uh, the tax increases in reconciliation, can he? Oh, indeed they can. I mean, it is. it pertains to the budget. And, and indeed, that's how Republicans uh, previously have passed uh, tax uh, cuts this reconciliation process. So, yes, the, the funding um, of this four to six trillion dollar package, uh, very much that that's on the table, really any revenue raising mechanism. So um, were the Democrats to, to go, go it alone, then yes, uh, a precipitous increase in the corporate tax rate uh, is one of many revenue raising measures that would be on the table.
That is uh, disappointing to hear that. <laughs> but uh, it is what it is. So thank you for that, William. So uh, another important thing that's going on right now is uh, this uh, voting act uh, has uh, f- fallen by the wayside. It's not going to happen. In other words, we're not going to get this federal uh, voting bill uh, that, the, that the Biden administration is pushing. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, So I can say this. uh, My colleague, Walter Olson, has done uh, exemplary work in exposing the many constitutional flaws with the uh, For the People Act, which which is what this legislation that actually died this week due to a a Senate filibuster um, is called. So in addition to being unconstitutional, this bill is just a terrible idea. I mean, it would federalize... Uh, uh, elections, you know, in all 50 states, um, and, and force them to do, you know, for one example that is really outrageous, it would force states to re-enfranchise murderers. I mean, you know, that, that just strikes me as politically uh, uh, asinine, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is, again, as I noted, it, uh, in effect, died this week in the Senate. It already passed the House. Um, and that's a good thing. It, truth be told, and this was one of the worst-kept secrets on Capitol Hill, but this bill uh, actually had widespread opposition amongst Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very flawed bill that, that was actually drafted when the, the, the House Democrats were in the minority, um, and it was meant to be aspirational. It was never meant to be passed. So uh, all this uh, hoopla that... The, that many uh, Democratic uh, Party leaders and political leaders would have you believe that this is sort of the end-all, and that um, Republicans are, are anti-democratic or anti-democracy for opposing it. Um, that really is all messaging, and the fact is this was a terribly flawed bill that most Democrats actually opposed in private. So interesting, William. You mean, I heard a comment that uh, Kirsten Cinema and... Uh, Joe Manchin are actually running interference for many who won't speak out, but who very much agree with with uh, with them right now. So um, it makes me wonder if the fraction of the Democrat Party is per, a little bit more serious than is uh, is uh, being well, uh, illustrated. I've heard the same, um, and certainly with regard to the For the People Act, which we were just discussing, but also also with respect to keeping the filibuster, that that there is actually a great deal more support for that in the Democratic Caucus than merely a senator's mansion and cinema. Interesting. William Yateman, again, research fellow at the Cato Institute. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your most well-informed commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Michael Cannon, research fellow, I should say, uh, actually uh, director of health studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, 
it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best and building a performing arts center in downtown Naples. All very exciting. I hope you'll check out the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Charles Murray, a renowned political scientist and author of his new book, Facing Reality. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So uh, right now, I just uh, referred to a study <clears throat> or from comments to Tucker Carlson about uh, giving this vaccine to younger folks. And I understand that you've got something like that happening right there in your own family. Yeah, so uh, we've got three children. The oldest is 12. And when he became eligible to receive uh, the Pfizer vaccine, we signed him up for that uh, vaccine. We think that uh, the risks or the benefits outweighed the risks to him. Uh, the benefits both to him and to society at large mm-hmm. uh, outweighed those risks. And that was a couple of weeks ago. And his second sh- shot is scheduled for tomorrow. But we're wrestling with whether to give him a second shot because the risk-benefit calculus has changed. Uh, one of the reasons it has changed is because, you know, the benefits of the second shot are much less than the benefits of the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's already got some degree of immunity as a result of the first shot. But more than that, after the first shot, uh, he, he developed a little bit of a pain in his chest. Uh. Now, if you're following the news surrounding the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccines, you may have heard that there have been cases of what we call myocarditis or an inflammation of the heart muscle right. in mostly male recipients uh, of the vaccine. And in some cases, they've led to hospitalization. And, and that's very concerning to us, first of all, that that's happening at all, but uh, secondly, that he has experienced a little bit of pain in his chest uh, because the severe cases of myocarditis happened after the second shot. And if he was experiencing that symptom after the first shot, well, it seems reasonable that he would be at a heightened risk for inflammation of his heart muscle after the second shot. And so right now we're wrestling with this question, do we give him the second shot or not? Oh, I certainly uh, understand it. Can't be an easy ahead, can't be an easy decision, but I'm wondering, in your calculus and, and weighing cost-benefit uh, or value, uh, do you have pressures from the school system or other forces that are suggesting, you know, that he, he can't come to school unless he gets a shot, anything like that going on? Not yet. There is, he, he, we have signed him up for a sleepaway camp that has a policy that, uh, if you, if anyone, they're going to be giving kids those nasal swab PCR tests twice over the course of two weeks. And if you or anyone in your cabin tests positive, then everyone has to go home which is a problem because it's a, it's a long way from home. Yeah. But if he gets the, if he's vaccinated, then uh, he doesn't have to get sent home, even if someone in his cabin does test positive. And he's probably already cleared that hurdle so, because he's had the first shot. So what we're wrestling with now is the, the, just the benefits to him of getting the second shot. And the CDC has put out some interesting data on this question. They say that for males... 12 to 17 years, for every 1 million second-dose vaccinations among males 12 to 17 years, you prevent 5,700 COVID-19 cases. You prevent 215 hospitalizations. You prevent 71 71 ICU admissions and two deaths, whereas you end up... So those are the benefits, uh, but you do get somewhere between 56 and 69 myocarditis cases among those 
males age 12 to 17 years. So what we're trying to balance right now is the risk of him being one of those 60 uh, in in 1 million boys who gets a case of myocarditis versus the benefits of preventing, you know, thousands of COVID-19 cases, uh, 71 ICU admissions and two deaths. Yeah, and uh, this uh, Dr. Robert Malone is the uh, mRNA uh, vaccine inventor, one of the inventors anyhow, and he said that uh, for him, he said anybody under the age of 18 or or under should not get the uh, vaccine. He just didn't see the benefit of it. So here's a guy that's pretty knowledgeable. He certainly understands what's going on. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that we understand all the risks that are uh, involved. Uh, These uh, episodes with, uh, for example, myocarditis, those are early on and, and shortly after the vaccine, at least the second dose. But we don't know what's going to happen in three months, six months, or a year. That is correct, and this is an interesting, this is an interesting development because, as you know, I've been on the show with, with you talking about vaccines a bunch of times. I'm generally more pro-vaccine than than you have been. You've been more cautious. I've been, I've made, uh, you know, the, the value judgments that we make have been a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But now there's a side effect of this vaccine that could be affecting my family, right. and uh, and and I have to take that. Uh, you know, I, I whereas I have generally been uh, encouraging people to vaccinate. It's an interesting situation now that uh, one of those possible side effects could be uh, touching one of my children, uh, and uh, it's it's. Uh, it, it's a difficult decision, which is why, you know, even though I'm more pro-vaccine, uh, I, I don't want to make these decisions for others because some of these decisions are really difficult. And absolutely. Well, uh, not to pry, but where are you leaning? So it's, uh, I really am not sure I'm able to say because, uh, as, I, as I said, the, it's a tough call. It's a close call. Mm-hmm. The, the benefits to him at this Points are not are not great because it's a second dose, uh, and he's already got most of the benefit of the vaccine from getting the first dose. And uh, while the benefits, if the CDC's numbers are right, and there are benefits uh, to him getting the second vaccine, most of the benefits are to others, and all of the risk is borne by him. And you know, you, you're you know, as a parent, uh, the the it, you, I would feel in Hence, guilt and remorse. If I made a decision that led uh, that, that ended up harming my son, yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, it's it's a very difficult and close call, and I'm not sure where I'm going to come down. And also, you know, I'm not the only parent here. Yeah, uh, and so this is a decision I'm going to have to make with, uh, with with my wife about what we're going to do, and I have to seek her input as well. Well, so I certainly uh, wish you the best in making that decision, and for you and for your son. I mean, I worry about. Uh, mandating that kids in order to be able to go to college uh, have to have the vaccine. And, and, you know, and again, I come down to this, it should be an individual decision. And I just don't understand why, for example, school administrators at, at very good schools are making this decision. It's just making it's very, I quite frankly would have second thoughts about sending my kid to school if uh, he had to have a vaccine. Well, but I imagine, Bob, that if this were smallpox, those requirements would seem more reasonable to you. Yeah. Smallpox has a mortality uh, rate of, uh, uh, infection and fatality rate of something like 30%. You're, you're right. And you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, it, you know, I, what I see with, the, uh, uh, with COVID-19 is that it's minimal risk for anybody, say, uh, 60 and younger. Well, yeah, it, it might be, uh, and you might define that as minimal, and others might uh, uh, see that as a risk they're not willing to take and they are therefore going to be more open yep. to requirements that others vaccinate because they don't want others to be literally, although invisibly, assaulting them with a virus that poses what they, they consider to be an unreasonable Yeah, Michael, interesting times right now. Well, we'll think good thoughts for you and your son and your family at this important decision that you need to make by tomorrow, actually. So, Michael, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, Bob. Take care. You too.
All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Charles Murray, uh, the author of Facing Reality. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden uh, Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Right now we have with us renowned political scientist and author Charles Murray, his latest book, Facing Reality. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Charles. So I wanted to ask you a few questions about the book. First of all, I saw your interview with Tucker Carlson, which was just fantastic, and uh, learned a lot and was very much appreciative of uh, your point of view. But I read the book. I think it's an important contribution to the dialogue and the the, uh, conversations that are happening right now around race. Why uh, why did you write Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America? Well, I felt I had to. Uh, Last summer, in June, July, with the protests and the riots and the rest uh, over the George Floyd killing. It was fine with me if people wanted to uh, point out the injustice of that and prosecute the persons responsible, and otherwise to say that policing needs to be improved in certain respects. But I wanted somebody to say, listen, uh, let's not tar the police because there are disparate behaviors in, in policing in black communities because it is also true that the proportion of violent crimes in, in black communities is multiples of the uh, proportion in white communities. And police, behaving responsibly and professionally, uh, have to respond differently to more uh, violent, dangerous situations. So that was the start of it. And then uh, as the allegations became ones of systemic racism, the United States is systemically racist, and we need to have radical reparations and compensation. I said, wait a minute. This is repudiating, directly repudiating, the American ideal of treating people as individuals. The bedrock reason that America is different from every other country when it was formed. It doesn't make any difference who your parents were or your race, color, or creed. Uh, You're supposed to be judged from what you bring to the table. Hmm. And so I saw this, still see it, as an existential threat. And I said, I've got to write a book 
talking about these underlying causes of problems that nobody is willing to talk about. And I'm certainly glad you did. So in what ways are charges of uh, systemic racism and white privilege, how are they tearing our nation apart? Well, it's, it's, well, they're tearing us apart in one thing because of hostility that has been growing. And the really scary part of that, Bob, is you have tens of millions of white Americans who have never thought of themselves as racist. Mm. They have not behaved as racist. They, they look at their lives and say, my black colleagues at work, I treat with respect and friendship. I think everybody ought to be judged as an individual. I'm not a racist. And they are being told in a drumbeat, uh, not just by black public intellectuals, but by the Washington Post, the New York Times, NBC, ABC, CBS. They are being told you are evil, you are racist, even though you don't realize it. You are the cause of all of black's problems, and you better shape up or else. That's so um, true. A good American response to that kind of thing is, okay, I've had it. And the problem is saying, I've had it with tens of millions of white Americans, I'm afraid means that they will gravitate toward identity politics themselves and say, well, hey, if blacks and Latinos can do it, we can do it too. That way lies disaster. So interesting. So in facing reality, you contend that American whites, blacks, Latinos, and Asians have different rates of violent crime and different means and distributions of cognitive ability. Can you explain this and help us uh, with the two truths about race in America? Sure. Uh, first place, I want to emphasize to your listeners that I am not uh, making some radical new claim. I'm using truths that have been documented repeatedly over the years. Mm -hmm. With violent crime, you simply take the arrest records of major cities, uh, including New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, etc., and the ratio of violent arrests uh, among bl uh, blacks to whites is about 10 to 1. And in the case of cognitive ability, you don't need to go into elaborate arguments about the meaning of IQ tests. It doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about IQ tests or uh, the SAT or tests of math ability and, and reading ability. In all of those cases, you see time and again the same ordering with Asians on top, uh, then come whites, then come Latinos, and then come blacks in terms of the means. And Bob, this is the point at which I have to emphasize that a difference in means doesn't mean that people are sorted into separate bins. Mm -hmm. Millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites. I'm talking about differences that are perfectly uh, tolerable in terms of our individual judgments about people. If you have a black physician that is really smart, it doesn't make any difference that he is black, but the important thing is that he is an individual is a terrific position. But if you're talking about large groups of people, then you have social consequences. And so the difference in means plays out in terms of promotions, it gets played out in terms of job performance, and so forth. Well, in affirmative action, and you see what's happening in colleges, uh, Harvard, for example, extending uh, invitations to uh, come to campus to uh, black people, probably way beyond uh, their qualifications, uh, because, you know, they're just trying to meet a, meet a quota. What I reflect on is it can't be a pleasant experience to go to Harvard if you're not equipped to, to, to compete and uh, converse with the other students there. It can't be a good learning. It can't help your oh. self-esteem. Oh, the, the, if, well, just think of, of our own experiences at times when we have been thrown in uh, with people, whether we were talking about playing Little League at the age of nine, mm -hmm. uh, where you're really bad at it, as I was, or whether you're talking about showing up at MIT as a really smart kid, except that you're competing with other MIT freshmen who are not just really smart, they are super smart. Mm -hmm. It's demoralizing. Uh, it's it's extremely demoralizing. It's it's bad for everybody. Uh, that's my point. But the main reason it's bad, and aggressive affirmative action, is what makes this whole thing a problem. If we still had, if we still had a single standard of of success in race relations, which is make sure everybody gets a fair shake, that a Latino job candidate or a black job candidate is judged on the same criteria as a white job candidate, mm -hmm. if to the extent that that is our measure of success, the United States has no problem. 
because it's not that they don't get a fair shot. They are getting a better-than-fair shot. Uh, but in that context, when the employment market is biased in favor of blacks and Latinos, not against them, when the college entrance is biased in favor of blacks and Latinos instead of whites, why are we talking about systemic racism as the cause of our problems? Affirmative action, I think, in my view, is a, a poison that has been leaking into the American system for 50 years yeah. because it is so patently unfair according to traditional American standards of fairness. So interesting, Charles. So uh, what solutions do you recommend to combat toxic identity politics and systemic racism and the narrative that's been uh, defending while defending the American creed? Well, the, the, the solution that would just get rid of 90% of the polarization is what I just said. The, the federal government announces that governments at all levels shall be impartial. They shall, in their laws, in their regulations, in their social programs, in all other things, they will make no distinction whatsoever on the basis of race and take as their ideal that when you're dealing with American governmental units, no matter what your race, you can be confident that nobody else is being uh, put ahead of you in line. That's not going to happen, Bob. Yeah. So I, I also ask for a much more modest uh, change, and that is let's start saying out loud that we believe in the traditional American ideal of treating people as individuals. Let's say out loud that the notion that colorblind is racist which is part of the identity politics uh, mm. rhetoric, is nuts. That colorblind is exactly what we should be seeking in our relationships with other Americans. The melting pot is not racist. The melting pot is what America should aspire to. And that we are not a systemically racist country. So if Joe Biden would say that, that that's the ideal, but not change any of the policies toward affirmative action, just saying that out loud, America is not systemically racist. The ideal is treating people as individuals. That would help. Yeah. And it would make it easier for people on the center left to say that out loud to others on the center left. It would make it easier for blacks to say that out loud to other blacks. It would, it would start to resuscitate a correction in what we want America to be. And that's what identity politics really challenges. Charles Murray, again, the author of Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. It's just a terrific read. I've had a chance to go to read it, and I just encourage all of our listeners to uh, get a copy of Facing Reality. Charles Murray, again, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Dave Bego, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC 
goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It's a book I'm sure he wish he didn't have to write. But uh, he was approached by union bosses from SEIU. They said, uh, sign this neutrality agreement, and we'll uh, go by and sign up your workers. And once we get to 50% plus one, we'll unionize your shop. He said, if you're going to unionize our shop, and by the way, Dave's business is, spans over 40 states with over 6,000 employees, uh, executive management services, if you're going to unionize us, you're going to have to do it through secret ballot. They didn't like that response, and uh, they proceeded to play dirty tricks like you can't believe over the next two and a half years. Dave wrote a book about it, how he actually uh, won, <clears throat> and they went away. Again, the name of the book is The Devil at Our Doorstep. Dave Beagle, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Uh, thanks for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, Dave. So uh, right now, I, I'm sure the unions are happy to, that, uh, and I'm talking about not all unions, uh, because they're not all bad, but unions like SEIU, they have leadership that does, the culture's not good uh, there. Uh, and uh, I'm sure they're happy that Joe Biden's the president right now. Well, absolutely they are, Bob. Um, you know, Joe Biden is pushing for uh, more people to be unionized, and um, he and the labor board are, are plotting a worker force outreach push um, uh, backed by Biden. And um, and basically what it is, is Biden is a, um, looking for an influx of cash uh, for National Labor Relations Board to educate workers about their right to form a union. Hmm. That doesn't sound good. That's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Uh, you know, and uh, also he's trying to help, you know, get this PRO Act passed, which, um, you know, People, I got to understand. I, I can hit some of the talking, you know, the, or the points that are real quick. Uh, they want to undermine secret ballot elections, is what the SEIU tried to do against us mm -hmm. uh, by signing the neutrality <clears throat> agreement um, and impose on the full country. Uh, uh, independent contractors would be uh, could be unionized, um, uh, and allowing unions to launched disruptive protests and pickets against any employer, which, you know, we went through, uh, codify an expansive joint employer standard, meaning that businesses could suddenly face liability for workplaces they don't control and workers they don't employ, eliminate all state right-to-work laws, which, you know, Florida is, and of course, Indiana is a right-to-work states, uh, impose mandatory union contracts. Um, if, uh, there isn't a, um, agreement reached with an employer they impose their own uh, union contract wow um and um dave dave just taking a step back from all this now why are they doing this I, quite frankly i don't think they really care about union workers i think what they, what they want is the stream of income from that comes into the dues to the union bosses and the union bosses then get out the checkbook and write a check to the democrat party to support uh, that's that's a that's an important stream of income for the uh, f for the uh, Biden administration and for the Democrat Party. Well, that's right, and that's what the Pro Act is all about: is to force unionize more people. Basically, the same type of program, you know, uh, the SEIU used against us by signing a neutrality agreement. But in this case, uh, they would just bring all the uh, neutrality agreement stuff to law, and that's what they're trying to do, so they can really increase the number of unionized members across the country. Yeah, no question. And uh, the number of percentage of people that are in unions right now, I think, is almost at an all-time low. Yeah, I think it's uh, 7%? It's down below 6%. Down below oh. um, 
but uh, they're out there pushing hard again, and uh, you know it's uh, it's going to be interesting what happens over the next uh, year here. It certainly is. I don't know if you heard about the uh, uh, Supreme Court decision yesterday, but it's a big one. Uh, the nation's highest court struck down a California regulation that allowed union organizers to access agricultural farm workers on private property. The court held that the California regulation violated the 5th and 14th Amendments. It was a 6-3 to three vote against the 1975 regulations. So it used to be that, you know, uh, union organizers could just walk on the farm and start talking to the workers. Apparently not anymore. That's I think that's a big deal. Yeah, I think that's good. I'm glad the... Uh the uh, Supreme Court stood up because the National Labor Relations Board is starting to drift left because of changes Biden's made, and uh, we need our Supreme Court to stand up. Absolutely. So, uh, what do you? What else do you see coming right now? Well, you mean from the union standpoint? Uh-huh. Um, just the fact that uh, they're going to impose this uh, program that was used against us and. Uh, they're going to force unionize uh, people across the country. You know, there won't be an election process. It'll be, a, you know, a card a card check thing, and uh, you know, it's just not going to. Uh, it's not going to be pretty, Bob. No. Well, uh, let's. Uh, we're, we're going through a. We're kind of slogging through a t- tough couple of years right now. Hopefully, we'll make it to the midterms and things will turn around. Uh, this legislation that's being proposed. I don't know if you heard Biden yesterday. Uh, he was celebrating the fact that he had a bipartisan agreement with 21, uh, you know, uh, senators, and uh, for an infrastructure bill. But he said, "I'm not going to sign it <laughs> unless, unless uh, there's a, a reconciliation bill passed for the budget." So to put in another couple of trillion dollars into uh, uh, programs, what do they call it? Non-human infrastructure, I think, is what they're calling it. So unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Biden, he's just so, um, you know, when he's on there speaking, uh, he just loses his mind and his, you know, where he's at. And uh, But these things he's saying, Bob, he's controlled by the left, uh, and uh, he and Kamala both are. And, uh, you know, they just, uh, it's just like Kamala not going down to the border, although she's scheduled to here shortly. But, uh, um you know, they want those people to come across because they get those people to go in and uh, to during um, voting times and uh, go in and vote, even though they're not registered voters. That's exactly right. In fact, she's going 800 miles away from the hotspots where you know, where the uh, uh, people are crossing the border. So that's what she's she's going she's going to the border, but certainly not at a hotspot where you're going to see where she will have an opportunity to see what's really happening. And I don't know if you heard too, but her her. Uh, travel uh people quit the people that arrange all of her travel they just quit yesterday is that right yeah <laughs> wow what do you, what kind of message do you think that sends i think it's uh, pretty incredible i don't think she's that easy to get along with yeah i don't think so either and uh you know it's um the like i said the left controls them and that but she's uh she definitely is not a um a very personable person no and uh, you know, and I wanted to say one other thing real quick, you know, and this goes along with the Democratic Party, too, and what's going on. You know, Biden wants to impose gun laws and uh, and gun control. And um, but you, you look at all the cities across the country where you have the biggest crime rates. And I got this article uh, the other day that um, rates the top 150 cities in the country. And when you look at it, um the, um, the starting with the uh, the Democratic parties, Denver is 130, Los Angeles 134, Chicago is 141, uh, New York's 148, Washington D.C. is 150, and these are all places where you're having a lot of uh, shootings and that going on. Mm-hmm. And this is because um, the Democrats they like to talk about their gun control which they really don't impose, and it doesn't work. That's exactly right. And, of course, defund the police. That's been happening in some of those cities as well. Dave, I always appreciate your most well-informed comment, uh, commentary here on the show. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Have a great weekend. You as well. Thank you. 
that Dave Beagle, the devil at our doorstep, is the name of the book. That's a wrap on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. On Monday, we're going to ever uh, visit with Amber Northern. Uh, she is uh, uh, with the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We'll also visit with uh, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, and Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. I uh, always appreciate your comments. If you want to send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>